but they were great at first. And then lots of things changed. We started a residency. That was really exciting. And I was one of the assistant program directors for that. And then I would say things changed. And at some point, I just realized that in that department, I was no longer ethically and morally aligned with my leadership team and with the organization as a whole. I cut back my hours and cut back my hours trying to see if I could find a tolerable level. And at some point, I just was like, I just, I can't, I just can't. And I love my work. I love my work. I love taking care of kids. I love doing pediatric dermatology. I love teaching, but I did not love my job. And I was like, that's a solvable problem. Yeah. You're listening to the Direct Care Derm. My name is Stephen. I'm a board-certified dermatologist and direct care dermatology practice owner. I'm also your host. The Direct Care Derm is a podcast that gives you a blueprint for creating a direct care practice of your own with the help of my story as I'm living it and the stories of many friends and colleagues, both within dermatology and other fields of medicine and in relevant non-medical fields, such as marketing and finance. Each week, my friends and I will be bringing you tips, resources, education, entertaining stories, industry insights, and so much more. Consider this your one-stop shop for taking yourself from direct care curiosity to direct care mastery. At this point, you may find yourself asking, what is direct care? Direct care is the restoration of the therapeutic physician-patient relationship and the trust between patient and physician that has eroded so terribly over the last several decades. Direct care is addition by subtraction. It's the opposite of indirect care, the kind of care that's so frustrating to both patients and doctors. If you or a doctor in your life has ever talked about being burned out in medicine, this is one of the biggest reasons why. Fortunately, there's something we can do about it. By removing as many barriers as possible that stand between physicians like myself and the people who need us, Direct Care Practices seek to provide transparent, affordable, accessible, and superior care that meets and ideally even surpasses the expectations of the 21st century healthcare consumer. This episode of the Direct Care Derm podcast is brought to you by Above and Beyond Dermatology, my virtual direct care practice that is on a mission to raise the standard of care in dermatology. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to the Above and Beyond Dermatology newsletter at LlewellisMD.com or simply find me on Instagram, also at LlewellisMD. Follow me so your message will get to my inbox and DM me the word newsletter. If you want to get on the list and also get my free guide to starting and consistently using a topical retinoid on your skin, head over to retinoids, R-E-T-I-N-O-I-D-S dot You can also find links in the show notes. My primary focus with Above and Beyond Dermatology is helping people with chronic inflammatory skin diseases who haven't felt served, seen, or heard in the insurance-dependent dermatology market. The signature Above and Beyond framework for flipping the script on how you experience dermatology care might surprise and delight you and can ultimately transform you if you're willing to put in the work. I also love to help with quicker things that simply need to be addressed in a timely manner. This reduces unnecessary suffering and possible misdiagnosis or mistreatment, as well as overall costs. The latter is a great alternative if you find yourself waiting three to six months or longer for an appointment with the in-network dermatologist closest to you. If you know any Wisconsin residents who may be in the market for a dermatologist, please share this with them. I'll gradually be obtaining licensure in other states so I can serve a broader geography. I don't contract with health insurance companies. I prefer to contract directly with my patients, clients, or customers, whatever term resonates most with you in the context of a health transformation. This direct connection helps restore the eroded physician-patient relationship, which is the essence of direct care. Simply call or text 715-391-9774 or email Dr. Llewellis, D-R-L-E-W-E-L-L-I-S, at aboveandbeyondderm.com for more information. There is no obligation. I'm happy to hop on a call to discuss if I'm right for you or your family and teach you about my philosophy and approach. If I'm not the best person for the job, I'll do my best to help you get to someone who is. 
If you're not a Wisconsin resident but would like to pitch me on becoming licensed in your state, I'd love to talk to you as well. Now back to this week's episode. Dr. Sarah Ash is a triple board-certified pediatric dermatologist. She graduated from Temple University School of Medicine and did her pediatrics residency at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, her dermatology residency at the University of California, San Francisco, and her pediatric dermatology fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Her current personal mission is to expand high-quality pediatric dermatology care throughout underserved areas in the upper Midwest and a little beyond. She says her motivation for her own practice is that she loves her work in pediatric dermatology and she wanted to love her job again. She founded and is building Hometown Pediatric Dermatology, her direct care pediatric teledermatology practice, which she simply calls practicing medicine. She serves volunteer roles in her profession with leadership roles in the Minnesota Dermatologic Society, the Foundation for Ichthyosis and Related Skin Types, and the Teledermatology Committee of the Society for Pediatric Dermatology. She is a member of the editorial board of the journal Pediatric Dermatology. Her favorite small project is that she is the founder slash organizer of the Middle Country Mentorship Group, a case-sharing, self-mentorship group of mostly solo pediatric dermatologists primarily in the central and mountain time zones. One big project that she's currently excited about is being the pediatric dermatology lead for Project ECHO in the Upper Midwest, the first session of which is coming March 2024. She loves to spend time filling her soul by volunteering at the American Academy of Dermatology's Camp Discovery as a volunteer. She is also currently adjunct faculty in dermatology at the University of Minnesota and a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at Michigan State University School of Human Medicine. Most of all, she's an incredible human being, a wonderful friend, an amazing doctor, and kids and families everywhere who are struggling with skin diseases are lucky she exists. Sarah and I first met when we were both working for the same hospital system in Minnesota. I saw something in her at that time that resonated with me. I'm not surprised that I'm now following in her footsteps as a direct care dermatologist. If you don't yet know her, I'm really excited to introduce you to her. She and I had such a good time reconnecting that we went on quite a bit longer than either of us expected to. I'm grateful for this, but I'm breaking the episode up into two parts to make it more approachable. Please enjoy part one today, and we can look forward to part two next week. Same time, same place. Welcome to another episode of the Direct Care Derm. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Luellis. I'm here with my friend and wonderful pediatric dermatologist, Dr. Sarah Ash. Dr. Ash, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am just delighted. I've never been on a podcast before. (laughs) Podcast virgins are always exciting to have. That was me not very long ago. Just a couple months ago was probably the first time I was ever on a podcast, and now I have a podcast. I'm already seeing the artwork. We talked about it a little bit already, but I want to point out the artwork behind you. You said a former colleague and partner of yours drew those, actually. That's dermatopathology. For those of you who can recognize it, that's molluscum right behind uh, her over her head. Yep. We have a molluscum and a ward up there. She did it with paint. And I was like, wow, that's somebody with skills that I don't have. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt about that. Not that you don't have those skills, but no no doubt that she has I do not. Yeah, okay. I do not. Fair enough. But I'm okay with that. I have other skills. Same. (laughs) That's a great point in general. We all have our own skills and we can embrace the skills of other people and put them on our wall or put them on our teams and recognize the areas of us that we can contribute to other people. I interrupted you already, like a good doctor does, interrupt within seven (laughs) seconds of letting the other person talk. So why don't you tell the audience just a bit about yourself? We already gave a a broad introduction right at the top of the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and it is much training as a neurosurgeon so I can do baby rashes, which is what people think I do. And I do some of that, but I do other complicated, Mm. hard things and I like to do complicated, hard things and I like to do simple things. And I love taking care of children and that is really my primary mission and focus is the care of children. So I had to, I came to 
pediatric dermatology. I did pediatrics. And then the only way to get to pediatric dermatology is to go through dermatology and then come back around. And I learned things in all those experiences, but that has always been my main focus in medicine. I wasn't always going to take care of children because my mother was a pediatrician. And I was like, I'm absolutely not doing that. <laughs> Here I am. Okay. And I started my own practice. Congratulations. That is a, a big deal. You're a very humble person, but it is no small feat to go out on your own and start your own practice. And no doubt we're going to spend the majority of the show talking about that and things related to it. But I want to touch on something you just said there. You, you said something in such an eloquent and simple way that I have always wanted to, a good way to say to people. I like doing complex, hard things, but I also like doing simple, easy things. And there's nothing wrong with that. The people who are brave enough in dermatology to do the hard, complex things deserve to do simple, easy things as well. And I'm so grateful for the people who are there when a patient comes into my office and it's a three-month-old and they have a infantile hemangioma it's on their nose it's near their eye it's by their chin as dermatologists we know the thoughts we get when that patient comes in and we develop over time a workflow for it uh, but knowing that there are people like you out there who have done the training uh, of a neurosurgeon in terms of time and, and energy and all those things that you mentioned and sure you're half joking but you went to school and formal training for so many years and I can take these terrified parents and this uh, very young baby who has a problem that they are so worried about and say, I'm going to tell you about this. I know a lot about this. I can give you some anticipatory guidance about it. But I also know a wonderful pediatric dermatologist who I want you to see soon. And I'm going to help set that up. And I, there are many other hard, comple complex things within pediatric dermatology. Infantile hemangiomas is only one of the many things. We can talk about the ichthyoses and epidermal lysis bullosa, just awful things that people have to deal with. And we need compassionate humans like you on the other end who also have the skills. And there are only, what, 400 of you in the country-ish pediatric yep. dermatologists? Yep, correct. Yeah, correct. so that's, yeah, that <laughs> is pretty legit. That's a select crew of people. There are not enough of you. Why don't we get right into that? Tell me about sure. your transition from, for context, we worked for the same big practice in mm -hmm. the Minneapolis area when I was fresh out of residency. You were a pediatric dermatologist working at the same place I was. So I was so grateful that I was able to say, we have an amazing pediatric dermatologist here and I'm going to help you today, but I'm also going to refer you and get you set up with her because I can't give you the level of care that, that I know you need. Tell me how you got from there to where you are now and the mission you're on to bring quality pediatric dermatology to the upper Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I was probably, I think I wasn't out very long before you. <laughs> and what's interesting, and I think that people are not aware of, and you've trained other places in the country, so you are a little bit more, but the model of a big multi-specialty clinic is actually pretty unique to the upper Midwest. Yeah. It's grown in some other places, but these types of care systems don't actually exist throughout the U.S. and definitely not in other parts of the world. I think that's a, a thing when we say, oh, you just go to the clinic or like the system. It means different things to different True. people. So I think that's one thing. So how did I get from there to here? That was my first job out of my fellowship. Okay. And I was the only pediatric dermatologist. And at the time we had 40 dermatologists in that group. And they told me, I gave a webinar once and they said to, for primary care. And it's all oh, like, how many people roughly? So I just have a sense. They said, we have 750 primary care doctors. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's a lot of people that I'm probably yeah. talking to. And so obviously not all of them are going to log in on the time. But anyway, I was like, okay, just for a sense of scale, that was helpful. I actually felt like early on that job was very supportive. They were excited to have their own pediatric dermatologist. They were pretty willing to listen to this person who wanted to do things a slightly different way because things need to be done differently for kids. They were there are things that were funny because in children, you have a much larger Medicaid population. So 50% of kids in the U.S. are on either Medicaid or CHIP, which are the two government-subsidized health insurance programs. They just weren't accustomed to having that high a percentage of people with that type of insurance in the mix. And people often who have subsidized health insurance have other 
challenges. So we didn't have great public transportation, for example. So we had a higher no-show rate. And I was like, they were trying to figure out, they couldn't figure out a pattern. The adult dermatologists, they had the pattern. They couldn't figure out a pattern. And I was like, run it against Medicaid. And they did. And they were like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, all the pediatric doctors know this. (laughs) So practicing as a pediatric person in basically an adult model. But they were great at first. And then lots of things changed. We started a residency. That was really exciting. And I was one of the assistant program directors for that. And then I would say things changed. And at some point, I just realized that in that department, I was no longer ethically and morally aligned with my leadership team and with the organization as a whole. I cut back my hours and cut back my hours trying to see if I could find a tolerable level. And at some point, I just was like, I just, I can't. I just can't. And I love my work. I love my work. I love taking care of kids. I love doing pediatric dermatology. I love teaching, but I did not love my job. And I was like, that's a solvable problem. Yeah, that was perfect. (laughs) You flipped the script on that dilemma in your life. There's, there can be what was me. That's a, that's a natural part of being human, but eventually there's also, it doesn't have to be this way, or I can solve this problem. This is figure outable. So you decided you were going to figure it out. I want to stay on this Mm -hmm. for a bit about alignment. I could not empathize more with your story in that regard. We have similar journeys because things change. When you're at a big hospital system and you're an employee, you have a lot of stability and security and a lot of things taken care of for you as a result of being an employee. And that's a trade-off. You trade uh, autonomy. You trade the ability to have a big say in the direction of the organization uh, and you trade other other aspects of business ownership and if something changes especially in senior administration the the ship can go a very different direction and you still love your patients you still love your staff but the mission that you're tied to it can be very different and I identify that now as what I learned as misalignment burnout. There's a doctor, Dr. Ali Abdal, who trained in the UK and no longer practices as a physician. He's essentially a productivity guru or expert. He has 5 million followers on YouTube. He's this young doc. He just wrote a book called Feel Good Productivity. I've talked about it before. He speaks from the position of a trained physician, and he identifies exertion burnout, depletion burnout and misalignment burnout. And that third one is what got me fired from my job, I'm sure. I was terminated (laughs) without cause, but it still feels like you're fired. And I believe that was because I wasn't aligned with the mission of the organization. And as a result, I pounded my fist a fair amount at meetings because I was advocating for things I believed in. And I was worried about the organization. I was worried about the other doctors, things they were saying to me, people saying it wasn't always this way. I will tell a very frank story right now because I think it's important. I was new to the practice where I practiced for the last two years. And it was wonderful. I thought I stepped into this amazing mirage of big hospital system, but it's one of the last ones that was still doing something right. And my colleagues were incredible. After a little time went by, I started experiencing things within the upper level administration and saying, guys, what's going on? I feel like I got here and I broke it. I'm sorry, but did I do something? (laughs) And without fail, every one of them would say, wasn't always like this. It changed. Something changed. It didn't used to be like this. I had a conversation with someone near the beginning. We have a medical group that signed my contract and paid me. And it was called the Spirus Medical Group. And there was a person who was the president of that group. I told our senior physician in the dermatology department, I invited her to my office for a conversation because I figured we should know each other. (laughs) We should at least know what each other look like. We should have a cordial relationship. So if something harder comes up ahead of time, we at least have that rapport. And she looked at me like she just saw a ghost and she did this and said, Jenny Redmond shell hates doctors. And I was just floored. I said, what? (laughs) This woman is not a physician. She is a well-respected administrator. But for for a doctor that I respect and who I know is very honest to say that, and who who is the president (laughs) of the group that we're both... That's probably not good. Not great. And the CEO (laughs) is also not a physician. And all of the people who were pointed to for putting the ship in a direction that people weren't excited about were not physicians. And that's endemic within this whole thing. And it makes sense. These are not... 
bad people. I am not trying to point to someone as evil or we're all trying to do our jobs and there's just misalignment. And that is unfortunate. If a person in leadership doesn't have the perspective of being a physician and having treated patients, it's almost inevitable that this misalignment comes up. I didn't expect to share that right now, but it's Mm -hmm. haunted me ever since I (laughs) I heard it. And I I met with Jenny and I liked Jenny. We had a Uh nice conversation, but the fact that a well-respected doc who has worked at that place for 10 years was saying that. And I, it, it, it is, and gives you pause. It gives you pause and it's endemic of so much that's going on that doctors don't realize. And that's why I'm speaking up about it, even though it might sound like a taboo subject. I didn't get any evidence from her that she hates doctors, but it was said. And I was just, what is going on here? We'll see how much of that story that I end up keeping in the episode because I wasn't sure how far I'd go there. And sometimes I just do run my mouth, but I wanted to share that at least with you because that misalignment, I so resonated with that. So you've, you felt, but you've solved, you said, this is a problem that I can figure out and and I can solve and tell us uh, more about how you not solved, but are solving that. We are both very new to this. You are solving. (laughs) I think a couple of things informed that actually both my mother and before Before that, my grandfather was a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor, but actually he had trained as an OB and then worked in public health and actually ended up being the medical director for Gulf Oil. So anyway, he had a really interesting career. And then he did not actually support my mother interest in going to medical school. (laughs) My mother is a pediatrician. She just recently retired. She's practiced in multiple different settings over her life. And she actually helped found a pediatric subspecialty of emergency medicine, actually, Pete's emergency medicine, mm. but by accident, not on purpose. One of the places we lived when I was a kid, so we moved around quite a bit when I was a kid following her medical career, and we lived in a small town in northern rural Maine where she was the only pediatrician for 100 miles. She would take care of somebody's kid, and then we would get piano lessons, and like she mm. would take care of somebody's kid, and my dad would get help getting his car fixed. Wow, and <laughs> the old system. Because she wasn't going to not take care of people. Yeah. And so I think my, and she used to be on paper and all those things. And so we would have these conversations as I was going through my medical training and I had trained in enough different places and sought out enough different general experiences that I thought there were a lot of right ways to be a really good doctor. That's a guiding principle is that in my family, being a good doctor is really important. If you're going to be a doctor, you should be a good doctor. And that's more about caring for your patients and being curious and looking things up and not being complacent, right? And I never doubted that I could be a good doctor. I just was like, this is not working for me. People used to just pay people to be their doctor. That seems to make a lot of sense to me, especially because when I was working in a big system, and I still work part-time in a different big system, we can talk more about how that actually aligns with my mission of expanding rural care. Mm -hmm. And I do a little bit of part-time work at a county system. I'm talking to people all the time about how their health care is unaffordable. I spend probably more time in a single day talking to people about how we're going to afford the medicine they need than actually how long it takes me to tell them the problems or the side effects plus the pros and cons of the medicine they need. Talking to people about money is something that we do all the time, all day long, every day, no matter what practice setting you're in, you talk to people about money. So I felt I already talked to people about money. It doesn't bother me to say, you're going to see me and this is how much it's going to cost you to see me. People think it's shocking. You can tell them how much it's going to cost you. That's exciting. In the big system, you ask me like how much of a bill I'm going to get. I'd be like, I have no idea. And how much does that hurt contribute (laughs) to moral injury over time? You constantly having to say that. And that's a horrible way as a professional to have to say, uh, and we don't know how much medical debt we are saddling these patients with, not right. because of our no. take-home income, but right. because we are trying to take care of them. And then because of the system, they end up $10,000 in debt because right. we have no idea. And I also felt when I talk to people about taking insurance, I'm not against taking insurance. I actually am a Medicaid provider because mm-hmm. I think that taking Medicaid is a good thing to do. Good. But I can't provide care to a lot of people on Medicaid in Minnesota because they're all in managed care plans. <sighs> And for me to get on one of those managed care plans, they actually charge you money to do that, <laughs> which I don't understand. And that's like pretty much all insurances. There's like a credentialing fee. Hmm. And it was one of those things where I was like, 
Huh. And that would take him like six months to do that. And between people's co-pays yeah. and like the charges now for follow-up questions and so on, mm-hmm. which I actually, everybody's all upset about that. And I don't think that anybody should be upset about those charges for follow-up questions yeah. because that's how insurance is structured. That's mm-hmm. not the doctor's fault. And the doctor should answer the question. The doctor should bill for their time and their work because the big corporation doesn't love you. Mm-hmm. They aren't going to pay you more if you're sitting in your pajamas doing your work. Yeah. That's not a thing. I'm not down on doctors at all for that or on organizations for charging it because that's all part of this crazy system that mm-hmm. we have built, which... That's like a whole other <laughs> like podcast. If you're going to play inside the system, you might as well right. play by the rules. That's what right. the insurance companies are doing. And I was just done with that. <laughs> I just was done. Yeah. I was just tired of having that conversation with people all day mm-hmm. long. And even with my current practice, because they'll use their insurance for their medications. And I say, hey, this might take a couple days because there might be prior off. And if there is that, I'm going to let you know. But I don't do those for free. Yeah. And I don't do them for free because I hate doing them. Yeah. I hate them. Yeah. And it takes your time. <laughs> I, yeah. It takes my time. Like, exactly. It takes time. And I don't like doing them. And yeah. nobody's paying me. Nobody's covering the overhead yeah. for somebody else to do it for me. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah. It's I, you uh, working for the insurance company to lower their right? costs <laughs> for free. <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> I talk to people about a lot of cost saving things. I actually saw an adult patient for birthmarks because pediatric dermatologists are birthmark experts. And she actually worked in healthcare. And she said she really appreciated on my website how I have things about ways to get cheaper medications and sliding scale and so on because it's just so hard for so many people. So wonderful that you have take had the courage to solve this problem. You are reaching a, a, a segment of the market that's underserved and you're serving them. That is what most doctors want to do. They want to serve and they want to be like your family's lineage. They want to be good, caring doctors. And where we found ourselves is that Doctors are no different now than that barter system when there is a a lack of an ability to pay actual currency or whatever it is. That could, in a sense, still happen. And it's the lack of flexibility when we're stuck inside these systems and we put ourselves in these boxes that tears us down uh, from the inside because you are told by the system Oh, that patient wants to give you a something, and it, it has a value of twenty-seven dollars. That's not allowed. We're sorry that, it, and that you right. have to report <laughs> that or whatever it is. I, there are these rules in place for a reason. I understand of regulations, yep. mm-hmm. but the, the, there's just no flexibility, and so right. many people are paying out the ears anyway. But it's this combination of indirect payments that are huge and shared yes. by society, and direct payments which are still done more and more so in the insurance game. The insurance companies have done the most for people like me and you who want to educate patients about direct care because patients mm-hmm. are already paying directly out the wazoo. So we can often <laughs> do like, something yeah. that doesn't involve their deductible for less than they would have ended up paying if they had not yet met their deductible because of how prices have been inflated due to right. the, the game that needs to be played. Exactly. And that's a complicated thing. But if you have an eloquent way of explaining to people, they're going to say, thank God you're here. I appreciate the transparency. I have money. I buy groceries. I buy things for my dog and my kids. That's the straw man argument about direct care only being for well-to-do or wealthy people. Right. I Not understand there is the Medicaid type of scenario and you are still trying to serve that population. You're right. trying. You can't even serve them. You want to serve them, but you're trying because right. there's these constraints. But right. people well, have, have a sliding money. scale. So yeah, sliding scale I just too. Get, yeah. I just get real cheap. Yeah, because it's (laughs) like at least at this point, it's just not such a big deal to me. Yeah, and and everyone makes that decision uh, for fix your problem. Yeah, whatever. What goes around (laughs) comes around too. That that person is going to tell three more people, and the next person is going to have a a higher ability uh, to pay your regular fee, and it all comes out in the wash eventually. And you are aligned with your mission. You want to be compensated. That is fair and reasonable, but your number one priority is helping people. And you're in an area where there there aren't nearly enough pediatric dermatologists, let alone regular dermatologists like me. Right. And you're doing your best to to spread that high quality care and democratize it uh, and make a living in the process. And back so, to your flexibility point, I'm totally yeah. going to interrupt you like a doctor. No, please um, do. I, I saw a, a young adult and... So isotretinoin is a common medicine mm-hmm. that dermatologists prescribe and requires somewhere between six and nine months of treatment with monthly visits. 
And so what I did is I did that. I was like, why don't we just do that like braces Yes. where you pay your orthodontist and they like put on your braces and then you get all the follow-up care. I'm like, so why don't I just say we're going to do this amount for an Accutane course, like mm-hmm. an isotretinoin course. Accutane is an old brand name that doesn't actually exist anymore. And you can see me for however many visits it takes up to, I think I said two years, mm-hmm. which most people it's going to take six to nine months. And people don't want to keep seeing you. It's delightful to meet your doctor, but I don't even like going to the doctor. I've had to interact with healthcare a lot recently, and I'm like, this is just taking me a lot of time. And no, I actually don't want to come back and see you unless I have to. Do I have to? (laughs) It has the surgeon that she was like, no. (laughs) I was like, it doesn't help you, but I, I don't think I need to. So this young woman, she said she had asked me for my fee. She was like, hey, can I split that across a few credit cards? And I was like, sure, but why don't I just bill you for part of it now and part of it in a couple months when you have enough money and she was like great and I was like when do you think you're gonna have enough money and she told me and then I just yeah. made a note and I build her half then and I build her half a little later and I Amazing. just so who cares life is short at the end of the day just being a little flexible as long as you can keep track and make sure that you actually get paid eventually yeah. and sometimes and you bill won't. primarily uh, and I bill up front yeah I bill up front that's important I, I agree exactly because I'm billing for my time yeah but as my father said, we all went to trade school. We did. So we went to trade school. Medicine is a trade. It's yeah. like being a plumber or an electrician. Yeah. Like you have a set of skills that is valuable to somebody and you had education and training to do that. Mm-hmm. And there's of course like, but I think anybody who tells you that like a, your plumber isn't somebody who is part of your emotional state has never had their yeah. water <laughs> sewer go out at two in the morning in the middle of winter. Yeah. <laughs> your and, emotional and- state is definitely affected. And plumbers so, uni- unionized for a reason, right? That yeah. Those plumbers have very good wages and are respected people and are very highly sought after service providers for a reason. Yep. And what are cardiologists? Plumbers uh, of the body at this point, because an interventional cardiologist, I should say, they, they are relieving clogs and that sort of thing. I love your idea of we are trades people. And... There are so many double standards. Although you, doctor, yes. have a PhD. So Correct. you are a true academician, Fair per my father's assessment. <laughs> my mother is an MD, PhD, but yeah. she actually got her PhD first and then went back to medicine. Cool. So You're in a long line of people who love being in school for as long as humanly possible. Yes, I know. I was in a PhD program before I went back to medical school. That's and amazing. then I was like, oh... I want to kill mice the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah. No. And my PhD advisor said to me, I've never met somebody who likes so much to think and talk about science, but doesn't actually really like to do, do it. science. I, <laughs> I was like, yep, that's, that's me. My, my wife likes to keep my head the appropriate size, which I appreciate mm-hmm. about her. And mm-hmm. she has a PhD. She is the true academician of the family. And she is in a lab through uh, UCSF. And they treat JMML, actually, ju- juvenile oh. myelomonocytic yeah. leukemia. She works with a doctor named Elliot Stieglitz. He's an amazing physician scientist, not an MD, PhD. But he has a pediatric mm-hmm. hematology, oncology doc in front of pediatric dermatologists, the kindest, nicest, le- least financially driven physician you will find on the planet (laughs) (laughs) is a pediatric cancer doctor. Yep, I agree. He is incredible. And she works remotely for them still. And she has always done genomics research within pediatric hematology and oncology. So she's the true academician. So I appreciate you pointing that out. And my PhD is simply for showing off these days. I don't use it as as much, but I'm glad I got it and it taught me a lot of things. This idea of being flexible and figuring things out, solving problems for people, mm-hmm. and that's not just about their skin. It's about the, the financial situation. It's about seeing recognizing a problem. You didn't, she didn't even ask for it. You saw that. She was going to do whatever she could to fix this problem and go into debt for it, whatever it was. And you recognized that and said, hey, why don't we do it a little bit different way? And you trusted her. And that's not always going to work out, but in the long run, it works out. If she doesn't pay that second payment, you write it off at the end of the year. You're not going to think about it in five years. Right. Uh, but she's going to not have horrible nodulocystic acne and she'll have confidence to maybe get that job she wants, go on dates, whatever it Mm -hmm. happens to be. And you can feel great about that and she can be, have a much better life for it. Uh, And you will not think about that write-off that you had to do in 2023, as long as it doesn't happen too often. So this is a balance. That's part of learning how to run a business, right? Businesses need to be 
profitable enough for the business owner and operator to continue running the business. That is a core right. component, essential uh, component right. of the business. Right. And that is my goal. I'm not there yet. <laughs> That's a great segue into how the heck do we do this? We're doctors. Right. We're not taught this stuff. That's part of why a lot of us just become employees because we want someone else to do that stuff for us. I think the most detrimental thing I ever said to myself was, I just want to take care of patients. And I think a lot of us say that. And we abdicate all the other responsibilities to other people. And then we get mad at those other people for, for screwing it up. <laughs> or for, it's so uh, interesting, right? Yeah, right? When I was first looking at jobs, I know I'm an anomaly. I actually like really wanted to get in the weeds. And one of the things I found most frustrating is that nobody will let you get in the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure some people are really good at it. Some people are really good at working with their organizations and coming mm -hmm. up with amazing programs and being able to advertise. And I apparently don't have that skill set to <laughs> figure out who those people are and how to meet them and how to do that stuff. Hmm. I would like maybe to have that skill set, but I don't. And so from my perspective, I was like, nobody will let me play on their sandbox. <laughs> so for me, like all things, like you've been talking about your wife, if you have a partner of some kind or another, like a spousal partner, mm -hmm. they're going to have a lot of opinions about having supported you, likely, at least emotionally, if not financially, for a decade or more. Mm -hmm. And at some point, as my, actually, my father said to my mother when she finished her PhD and then her MD and then went <laughs> off to the NIH, and she was thinking about going to law school. Oh my God. <laughs> he said her card, he was like, you have your PhD and your MD. Now I would like you to get a J-O-B. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> because many doctors, we really, we love learning. And the idea yeah. of going back to get another degree sounds fun. Mm -hmm. Like right now, I'm taking Spanish at the community college. Because I don't speak Spanish. And since half of our country is going to speak Spanish before I die, I feel like I should get on the train with that because it's going to take you a long time to really learn that. So yeah. there's that. I was like, in 10 years, I might be able to have a reasonable conversation with my patients. So I got to start early. I admire that. Um, Good for you. My spouse is a risk averse person. One of the things we did to ameliorate this risk adversedness, we focused on paying off my loans, which were very considerable okay. because I had an eight month old when I started medical oh, school. My gosh. So we had a ton of childcare yeah. through the years, which is expensive. Mm -hmm. And my husband had a job, but I had two children under the age of three in medical school and he was oh. traveling two to three times a month. So I look back at things that we did and I don't know how we just did. Because yeah. nobody told us not to. We did a lot of things just because nobody told us not to. And you figured um, it out because you've always been. And we just figured it too. out because yep. it's figure outable. Yeah. <laughs> so, anybody, he is a relatively risk averse person. Mm -hmm. And so we paid off all of my loans in three years. Okay. And we just made a really concerted effort to do that. You lived like um, a resident then, as Jim yeah, Dolly a says. little Yes, just above a resident, probably. Yeah. Yeah. To be f very honest, dermatologists are really lucky mm -hmm. in the house of medicine, yeah. partly because. It's just the way medicine is structured. We can see actually a pretty large number of patients relative to our colleagues and the things that especially general dermatologists do are better reimbursed than things that your primary care doctor does. Nobody pays pediatricians to vaccinate your children very well. They actually pay. It's fascinating. Do you know that you get actually paid less to vaccinate? So if you give a child five vaccines, they pay you basically like for the first one. And if you give an adult five vaccines, they pay you for all five. That's insane. I believe so, it. Anyhow. I would also believe you if you told me if you give a man five vaccines, they they pay you for six, and if you give a woman, they pay you for two. <laughs> so, so it's so crazy, true. and it's so true, and it's so depressing. But yes, um, it, yeah. we have been very lucky. We are very privileged. We have a financial advisor, which we decided when we were all grown up and we had some money, we should yeah. ask somebody what to do with it. And so she said, which I really appreciated, she goes, she goes you have in fact actually worked very hard to be where you are. And I was like... Thank you. That is true. <laughs> there are other people who also worked very hard and they are not where we are. Yeah. But there is a balance of that. We have worked hard and been lucky. Yes. But anyway, risk averse. So I think if, <laughs> and his mother actually started her own practice as a vet. So she went back to vet school when he was in elementary school mm. and started her own practice. And she still practices and she's 80. Right now, my mother retired from primary care medicine as a pediatrician when she was 76. Mm. We feel like we're in it for the long haul. Yeah. And anyway, if I had said to him, hey, I'm just going to hang out my shingle, he would have been like, yeah. no. So there is that. So a very honest thing is that this was not 
an easy transition. And as I say all the time, quitting your job the year your first child starts college does not make you real popular at home. (laughs) And it was a shared decision. I didn't just like rage quit one day. Although we do have conversations about if you're going to rage quit, can we financially do that? And I actually am a huge believer. You have to have a cushion. Put at least six months of all your expenses plus a little bit away. Um, Especially if you're like me and you're going to run your mouth at work. Yes, yeah. I didn't run my mouth at work too. I think that like... <laughs> there were a few some, of us I, at Park who were in the club. Of, <laughs> the good trouble club, I like to call us. Yes, but, yeah. yes. I'm, I think I, I think they were just, I don't know. I feel like they were just going to like chip away at me until I gave up. Yeah. And that's what they did instead yeah. of like outright firing mm-hmm. me. But if I had kept it up, I think they would have actually probably fired me yeah. eventually. So I've been lucky. Like I have, people call it like a local locums. So the county hospital system here has dermatologists and honestly was just chatting with a friend of mine and she said the doctor over there is going on maternity leave and they need somebody to fill in and I was like oh Hmm. and so then because they're all like young female dermatologists they literally was like maternity leave so then I had a year side gig where I worked one day a week supervising residents which is super Mm -hmm. fun and I really enjoy in this like crazy busy clinic serving very underserved people and I can't do that full time because I can't do general dermatology full time because grown-ups are too hairy and stinky yeah, and they all care about and they all have melasma and I just, yeah. anyway. So yeah, kids don't have melasma. Things, That's a, generally, no, they, they can't, but don't. not and they often. don't have skin cancer. Yeah, they're um, great. I love kids. Exactly. And I was very fortunate to mm. be able to connect with that. And what I like about that is that I don't need to own it. Yeah. I feel responsible for the education of the young physicians, and Mm -hmm. I feel responsible to the patients, but I don't feel responsible to how the joint runs, although it actually runs pretty nicely. But That's good. Yeah, so that's nice. And then I connected with another pediatric dermatologist who works at a children's hospital in a rural area of Michigan, so I'm shifting my side gig so that I can align better with my mission, which is providing care to kids in rural America Mm -hmm. with this children's hospital that provides care to kids that's in Western Michigan and the UP, which is a rural area. And even in the first couple of shifts I have worked there, which is a very new job for me over there, I would say almost all the patients are like, oh yeah, we live an hour away. Oh yeah, we live two and a half hours away. Oh yeah, we live. I'm like, yeah. where is that in Michigan? <laughs> and then they do um, this and that, with the hands. And... Right, exactly, with the mitten and <laughs> yeah, the, the whatever. And I think like flexibility is important on all parts. Yeah. My husband actually has an MBA and he has been thoroughly unhelpful (laughs) in starting my practice. And that's partly more of, we just have different styles and he actually is starting to be more interested in being helpful. And and he does help me. He also does IT. So I'm like, I don't understand all these words about how I have to set my website. I have to set these settings to be like actually secure. And so he helps me walk through things but I still am like I'm like ah it's my mouse I am doing it I just need you to help me read these directions and make sure I'm filling these right I love that (laughs) anyway that this show is for because we help a lot of people by telling our stories and we make a lot of people feel less alone because there are folks who are scared of starting their own practice Uh, it can bring such a wonderful things in so many ways but it is scary because Mm -hmm. you are responsible for everything. You can delegate, but you're responsible for everything, but you're most responsible for getting people to come see you. <laughs> Saying right. that, recognizing that Dr. Ash has a valuable service to provide, and I value that enough to pay what she's saying that uh, it costs. And even though you also are generous enough to have sliding scales and mm-hmm. uh, try at least your best to take Medicaid, even though it, it, it's so hard for you <laughs> to take it <laughs> because of the system. Right. But that is so important to think about family and have a compromise. You don't just get to become an entrepreneur and say, I'm just doing this and I'm doing it for my family. That's the riskiest thing you can tell yourself as an entrepreneur because your family will say bye-bye if you do it, if you say that to yourself long enough while ignoring them. So that balance is super important. You can't fill all the cups at the same time and make sure they're all the same level of fill always. But if you fill in the business cup a little too much and you see the other one getting a little low, you better recognize that. And you're always going to be sacrificing something. Yeah, I agree with that. And I have given up on this work-life balance no, bullshit. It's a myth. <laughs> yeah. I believe in work-life integration. Yes. If I am happy in my job, yeah. 
I'm actually happy at home yeah. and I'm more fun to be around. Mm-hmm. And the same with my husband. When he doesn't like his job, he is a bear. And he actually, at the same time that I was like, hey, I want to start my own practice. He was like, hey, I want to go work for a startup. And I was like, yeah, let's cool. Do, we should do that. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> let's just do that. Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah. And there's that, I think, a little bit of you just got to do it you sometimes. Just do, you just and, go. Yeah. and was it? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I'm going to have you But it wasn't a terrible decision. Yeah, no, it's going to be, in the end, it's going to be a wonderful decision, not only for you and your family, but for so many other people, the people you are serving, anyone you might employ down the road, all of that. And I am going to want to have you back multiple times to give us updates about how things are going. And I'll do the same thing. We're building in parallel. You started and were one of the inspirations to me. I remember being at my job and all of a sudden seeing that you started your own direct care practice. And I was texting Dr. Loso and, and Dr. <laughs> Philippe and I was, I was like, oh my gosh, did you see what Sarah did? This is incredible. And I got so excited. And then and you've been so generous. Like, Sarah's ever, lost her mind. No, not at all. Sarah's a, a, a courageous doctor and I wanted to emulate her. And you have been so generous to me offline about how, how can I help? And our whole community is like that. Entrepreneurs yeah. in general, but certainly dermatologists, physicians who are doing this, it is not a scarcity mindset. It is rising tides lift all boats there are so many patients yes. out there to serve them let's help each other serve them right. and we'll be much happier in the end and you have to build a practice like yeah. you said with reserves if i didn't have financial reserves first of all i would not have ran my mouth at work like i did i would have been a very good boy <laughs> until right. i was in a financially good place yeah. but nonetheless i have lots of lessons i've learned from that and if i didn't have that financial cushion and foundation that termination that i experienced it was traumatic, period, but it yeah. would have been oh, God, so much more traumatic and long lasting implications. And I would be running to just to the next job. I could easily yeah. get a next a next job and I would be yep. misalignment burnout just on that road again. Uh, another right. two years of building up a wonderful pool of patients and having great relationships with my staff and then not vibing with the place that I worked for again. My thought about a lot of these things as you go through these different pieces is that I just, I am trying even as like to leave things just a tiny bit better than I found them. Nice. And with our old practice, I think we both did. I think yeah. that you actually pushed people to think a lot more about how their clinic ran and also about complex patients and how to manage them. And I feel like I brought on of two pediatric dermatologists mm-hmm. at that organization and a residency. And I feel like I was a part of those things. It's more complicated than just this sucks. I'm going to take my toys and go home. Yeah. It's like trying to, I don't know, put all the pieces together. And I don't know that I have the right answer. And I don't know that for pediatric care, direct care is the right answer or not. But I love the people I've been able to take care of. Yeah. I get these wonderful referrals that I just really enjoy from the GI doctors that I used to work with. I've got a wonderful referral from you, actually, of this wicked diaper rash. It's crazy. And I just, yeah. Thank you. All I want to say is thank you. Treating diaper rash is one of the most difficult things on the planet in some scenarios. And it is because there are humans involved and we know exactly what's going on. (laughs) But we are all, those of us who have been parents also know, even if you tell me exactly what's going on, this is nearly impossible to do the things that you're telling me to do. And it's really hard. And I tried everything in my arsenal and I eventually said, I know someone who can and will help you better than I am able to help you. And you did. And I'm grateful for that. And it was so easy. It was so easy to do. I could say you can wait a few months and drive several hours to Madison or Milwaukee to see a pediatric dermatologist or because this thing doesn't need a biopsy or laying on in person, you can see Dr. Ash. She has a very reasonable fee schedule. You will get in this week probably, and they were very happy. And uh, how cool is oh, that? That's so. Thank you. Yes, that's and, the goal, right? Yeah, that's like, the goal. That's the and, goal. Hard. Yeah. <laughs> what What would this look like if it were easy? That's what a lot of people. Yeah. I, uh, when I listen to podcasts and stuff, I love when I hear things like that. And it's just imagining, fi- right. figure it out, that sort of thing. What would this look like if it were easy? And because I got so stressed out working within the constraints of the system, I'm not blaming the system on anyone. It's all yeah. everyone's partly com- uh, complicit in it, and. It, it just makes things 
hard for so many reasons. And when you free yourself of that and are able to innovate and still be a doctor, you can still be a doctor and be an innovator and an entrepreneur and all these things. And you can also, while you're building a wonderful practice that is sustainable and has a consistently high quality product rather than ramping up too fast and your product quality goes down because you want to replace your entire income within six months that you were making at your job before something like that, you can do other things. I do uh, some speaking for industry partners that I I trust and uh, appreciate and I I, various things too. I want to learn about how to do that. Absolutely, I'll be talking about that for sure. People always ask me, how do you do that? And I'm like, you have to talk to people. Unfortunately, that's the hard part. How do you get those jobs? It's like in real estate. How do you, I can't find a deal. How do you find it? You have to talk to people. That's the really hard part. You have to do the stuff that nobody else wants to do. And that's how you get those things. But it's whatever it is you do, you drive Uber. I don't care what you do. You just do other things to make money so that you're not putting pressure on this infant of a business to speak yeah. and walk and I do love math how problems you use that before, analogy. Yeah. yeah. And that is so important, but you don't need to have that thing be the only thing that is generating income for you. And sometimes we have a, yeah. a partner in the family who is also generating income, which is wonderful, but not everybody is yep. going to have that, but that doesn't mean they can't do this. Right. And you said, I don't know if I have the right answer. You don't <laughs> have the right answer. You have one answer. Right. And it's working yeah. well for right. you. And direct care is not the only way to go. There's a lot of different ways yeah. to solve problems. And we are not a anti-insurance podcast. Yes, health health correct. insurance, feel- <laughs> when used as insurance, is a wonderful thing. It is no longer insurance. That's why it's unaffordable. And that's right. why it's so complicated. And that's why everyone hates it. Do you hate your right. car insurance? Do you complain about your car insurance being unaffordable <laughs> other than one, once a a year when you pay it? No, because it just works and it is not all that costly relative to other things. So health insurance is no longer insurance. uh, And it it is a club membership of sorts that is a very unfun club to be part of, but it's still really expensive. Hey, Stephen here. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way you can support a podcast is to share, follow, subscribe, And most importantly, leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast hosting platform. If you're new here, you might not feel ready to leave an honest review yet. That's totally fine. At the very least, keep listening and share it with one person in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks for being here. Your attention means the world to me. I'll see you on the next episode. If you like this and want to subscribe to my newsletter, head over to LuellisMD.com. That's L-E-W-E-L-L-I-S-M-D as in medicaldoctor.com.